Welcome to Grizz Greats, The Coaching Tree, a podcast series, episode 1A, bonus track. How do we do this, Coulter? I don't know. It's a little, a yeah, little it's different a, deal. It's an extension. It's a podcast extension. This is like when you have a great series like this, and then you can also have supplementary, complimentary episodes. Pretty sweet. It is very sweet. Well, we're excited to do this, and we'll be doing this with each uh, main episode that we release, but a supplementary episode with players who played for uh, the coach that was featured in the episode that was released uh, before. And so, in this case, Jim Brandenburg was released out there. Hope you've all had an enjoyable time listening to him. And now... You get a chance to hear from a couple of guys who played for Judd Heathcote and for him. Uh, in the case of Eric Hayes, he actually only played for Judd Heathcote as a head coach, but certainly played for Coach Brandenburg as well, uh, who was on the staff with Judd Heathcote during his time. And then Ben Demers as well, who played for both guys. And uh, our thanks to both of these players. But Eric Hayes and Ben Demers, Coulter, two guys who played in a legendary time and in a legendary game for the University of Montana when Judd Heathcote was the head coach and Coach Brandenburg an assistant. And some strong local ties. Ben Demers is a Missoula Sentinel product. So he grew up in Missoula, was one of the local stars who then decided to stay home and play for the Grizz. And Eric Hayes hails from Junction City, Oregon, but then after his playing career was over, just one year stop at Michigan State as a graduate assistant for Judd Heathcote, but then moved back to Missoula, was the head coach at Hellgate for 32 years on the boys' side, also helped with the girls for 13 or 14 years. His daughters, Mandy and Molly Hayes, two of the great players that have ever come out of the state of Montana. Uh, and his son, Jeff Hayes, was also a phenomenal player, went on to be an All-American at Carroll College, and has been the Hellgate coach Forever, So basically it's just been the Hazes, with the exception of Jim Sampson in the middle, that have been Hellgate Boys basketball for some 40 years. So and Eric is still to this day Jeff's assistant, at right. least in in, uh, in part, if not officially, uh, in, with, with the Hellgate Boys basketball team who are having yet another outstanding season. And it's a great um, lens to view this through because not only these guys have great memories of their time playing, but they've also had an up-close-and-personal view of the program since their playing days were over. So they have been attending games and rooting on their alma mater and watching it grow and watching just the way that the transitions have gone from Jim Brandenburg to Mike Montgomery and then Mike Montgomery to Stu Morrill, Stu Morrill to Blaine Taylor, and on down the line. So these guys have not only been a part of this epic, awesome coaching tree, but also they've gotten to see the whole thing play out in front of them as Missoula natives. So I think that gives them unique perspective. You know what's an amazing thing, too? The city of Missoula has been growing for all about those 40 years. A lot of people moving in and out of homes, in and out of businesses, buying land, selling land, and it is useful to have a great real estate partner and agent or agents to help you with that. The folks at Berkshire Hathaway, they got you covered. Mike Nugent, Gary Bryan, and Mike Bryan, all three passionate Grizz Hoops supporters, passionate supporters of the University of Montana, and great Missoulians in general, Mike Bryant specifically, a local expert who's been working in the market for more than 25 years. He's got great historical knowledge on the city of Missoula, as well as in-depth knowledge on the real estate industry. That paired with current marketing abilities, high-end photography, videos, no matter what you need if you're in the market to buy or sell, Mike Bryant and the Bryant team got you covered. Mike Bryant, Berkshire Hathaway, Montana Properties, a proud supporter of University of Montana Athletics 
as well as Grizz basketball. Give Mike Bryan and the Bryan team a call today, 406-370-8734. That's 406-370-8374. Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate, your local real estate experts. And now, enjoy the supplementary episode of Grizz Grace the Coaching Tree with Eric Hayes and Ben Demers. Well, happy to welcome in to Grizz Greats, the coaching tree, a man who played for Judd Heathcote and also Jim Brandenburg as an assistant to Judd Heathcote in the mid-70s at the University of Montana and a lifer now in Missoula, Montana, Eric Hayes. Eric, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Well, I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to talk about the old days. Well, we're certainly happy to have you in and happy to talk about the old days. And it's interesting because the one coach, of course, that we we didn't get to interview for this series was Judd Heathcote and, and the godfather, really, of what became the coaching tree uh, at the University of Montana in this men's basketball program. And you started with Judd actually at Washington State, and then he came over to the University of Montana and you transferred in with him. Well, what do you remember about Coach Heathcote and, and that time of, of playing for him at Washington State, and how did he land on your radar or maybe you on his radar in the first place? Well, I I went to Washington State out of, I was in high school in Oregon and walked on at Washington State on their freshman team. Back then, freshmen were not eligible. And Judd was the assistant to Marv Harshman, the head coach at Washington State. And actually, our freshman coach was a guy named Denny Houston who went on and he was the head coach at Weber State and an assistant at the University of Washington in a number of places. So we had a, a great staff, and that's where I first got to know Judd was as a, as a freshman player. Uh, one thing I really liked about Washington State was during the preseason, you know, we had about a six-week stand of practices before we got to play our first game, and after a couple of weeks, Marv Harshman actually came down and coached the freshman team for a full week, and then Judd Heathcote also did that the following week, and it's quite an experience. Something I don't know if many of us were ready for. Judd is, was very, very intense, very difficult to play for, and the fact that you had to kind of block out a lot of his, his comments because he was very, <laughs> very intense. Very, very difficult. But I really respected him as a coach, and I thought he did a great job, and so I got to know him there a little bit. When he came here to the University of Montana in the fall of 71, uh, I was still at Washington State. It was my sophomore year. Uh, they had an entirely new coaching staff at Washington State at the time. I remember we had, back then we started practice on October 15th. That was a standard date. Everybody started the same day. And we had a whole new staff, and we had two days of tryouts. And they went from 29 players, I think, down to 12. And I was one of the 17 that was cut. And I wasn't real pleased with that. I thought I had a, you know, a decent chance to, to play there. And so after trying to regroup a little bit, I actually contacted Judd here at Montana and uh, made my first official visit to Missoula in, in early November. Came with a couple of my Washington State buddies. And I kind of liked it, but Judd really did not what I would say, recruit me. He, he told me that if I really wanted to be a college basketball player, it'd be best to go out and play in a small school in Oregon. And I kind of took that to heart. And fortunately, I think for myself and maybe for, for Judd, maybe for the University of Montana, in early December, Montana and Washington State played a game that fall in Pullman. 
And so I went to the game, and from my standpoint, Montana played horrible that night. And I remember going to Judd after the ball game and saying, Judd, I can play for you. And he said, well, tonight you could have. <laughs> uh, but um, he said, we, we really have a really good freshman class. And it was Ken McKenzie and Larry Smedley and the player that nobody remembers, probably by the name of Reuben Bailey out of Chicago, who's probably the best of the whole group. Uh, you know, and we had Tim Stambaugh and Tom Peck. And you know, it was just a really, really good freshman class. But I just I wanted to give the Division One a shot, and so I transferred here in January of that year. Uh, walked on as a, you know, onto the practice team, and so, so Judd at least gave you his blessing in that respect, right? He said, "Look, if you really are dedicated yeah. to this, come on down, and we'll see." Yeah, no, okay. he's, yeah, he said he'd give me an opportunity, yeah. and so I paid my own way that first year I transferred in, and I was on partial scholarship as a sophomore. And after my sophomore season, I was put on full ride, and you know it, it worked out great for all of us. I think. When you first made that first official visit to Missoula, had you ever been to Missoula before? I'd never been to Missoula. I had a high school math teacher who was actually at the at that time you had to retire at the age of sixty-five, and that she had just turned sixty-five. She grew up in Missoula, and she actually babysat at the Greeno Mansion. And, and she would tell us stories. We'd get her talking. <laughs> That's her last year. And she would be telling us stories about how they rode the train from Missoula to Butte uh, for the Montana-Montana State yeah, football right. game. Right. And I'd never, you know, I mean, it just didn't really affect me that much. But, I mean, here, that was the only connection I'd had to Missoula prior to coming here. But I, I fell in love with Missoula right away, and it's just been a great place. When you first stepped foot in Missoula, what were some of your first impressions? What do you remember about your first couple days here? Cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, when I transferred here, it was in the middle of January, and the first week I was here was when we it was really, really cold, and I think the wind chill was 45, 50 below, and the wind blowing out of that Hellgate Canyon and, you know, walking out of the the old field house after practice and walking back to the dorms all the way across campus. It was a, it was a cold walk. As you got though, in, integrated into Missoula and the university of Montana and playing basketball for Judd and, and at Missoula, what do you remember about playing for coach Heathcote and what was it that got you that opportunity? Because clearly you were coming in as the low man on the totem pole. And so what what sort of happened, transpired, that got you to where, where you got as a, as a player? Well, I don't know if there's any one thing. I, I remember my sophomore year. Uh, again, it's very similar to it is today. You have to set off a full year when you transfer from a Division One school. So I didn't become eligible until January 1st of 72, and in that time, or excuse me, in 73, and in that time, you know, they'd already played about six or eight ball games. And so, you know, I was practicing, but I wasn't playing. And actually, you know, I'd worked myself into the starting lineup. We'd had some, some injuries and everything, and I'd worked myself into the starting lineup. But after about two weeks of a starter, you know, I, I started to lose time. And uh, by the end of my sophomore season, I was – probably eighth, ninth, tenth man on the squad. And so I was a little disappointed and frustrated, but I just, I, I'll hang in there and see how it goes. And actually my junior year, I'd kind of worked myself up back up to a sixth or seventh man. And 
back then it was one of those, you know, when you played for Heathcote, it was great to be a starter, but it was horrible to be a starter at practice. Because, I mean, he just, he would rip on you as a starter. You know, if you were on the, we had two colors back then on the reversibles. They were purple and orange, and I have no idea why. But, you know, we had the purples <laughs> and the orange. The orange were the starters, and it was it was great to be on the perps, you know, because he didn't yell at you. He didn't, you know, he even praise you at times there because you were, you know, getting after the starters a little bit. My junior year, I didn't start early in the season, and about four or five games in, I'd kind of earned myself that starting spot. One of the starters wasn't playing as well, and I had performed well off the bench, and I got an opportunity, and I fortunately didn't relinquish it. From that point on, I had a great career here. Judd's third year here, which is also your junior year, how did you guys turn the corner? Because you guys have been kind of a 500 team the first couple years, and then that year where I think it was a 19-win season, tied for the Big Sky title, so... What was the turning point as a team? A couple of different things. No, you know, number one, we had better players. We had developed. I mean, a, a Ken McKenzie uh, was a junior at that point. He'd, you know, he'd started his entire sophomore season. Uh, he was a great, great player here. And some of the other, you know, Robin Selvig uh, had actually hurt his knee and would, had missed a little bit of time early, but he was coming off the knee injury. You know, and he's a great guard that uh, gave us some stability. And we just kind of meshed as a team. We just got a little better physically and stronger. And, of course, you know, being with Heathcote that much longer, uh, we developed that way. Ben Demers had come in as a freshman and had earned a starting spot. And so all of a sudden, you know, we, we just had a, a good blend of players. We'd had some, you know, we had some ups and downs early, but um, we felt we were going to be a good basketball team in the conference, and we did get on a roll. I think we won like our last 11 conference games or something. And unfortunately, we got beaten the playoff game to go to the NCAA tournament. Like I think that was our only home loss that season. And so, you know, we, we got it going. And fortunately, the next year, we had about everybody back again. That playoff game, 60-57 to 57 against Idaho State in Missoula. Do you remember it? Uh, yeah, I remember it very vividly. I would say my my junior year, I experienced a lot of injuries. I actually hyperextended a knee in practice right before Thanksgiving, so that had to be taped for the you know the rest of that season. Uh, I'd had some ankle sprains. I'd had what's called a pilonidal cyst that I had to have removed during the season, um, and actually then right near the end of the season, we had a great uh, home weekend with Idaho State and Boise State and we had to win both of those games to you know tie for the for the lead in the conference and in the Idaho State game on Friday night I didn't realize at the time but I had sprained my wrist quite severely and I wake up Saturday morning it was throbbing fortunately we had Naseby Reinhardt who's a tremendous athletic trainer uh, worked with me almost all day Saturday and came up with a, a soft cast that I could play with, and then I remember in the playoff game, I'm taped on my right wrist, I'm taped on my knees and ankles, and I ended up, I don't know, losing my balance, something, trying to save a loose ball, and end up crashing into the bleachers, and hit my left arm, and it went numb, and I was up in the locker room for the last eight or nine minutes of the first half, 
And at that time, we went from, we were down a few at the time. We went, you know, we, I don't know if we were seven, eight, nine down at the half. And, you know, we, we fought back second half. But Idaho State, you know, made the plays they had to at the end to, to end up beating us. For those that don't remember or didn't realize this, back then the Big Sky Conference and all conferences, you won the league, you go to the tournament, right? So this was a playoff game because you guys had tied for the league title. That's correct, yeah. Because there, there wasn't was, an actual Big Sky tournament for a couple more years, right? No, the Big Sky didn't start their first tournament until, I don't know if it was 77 or... I think, I think yeah, I think 76, 77 that season, yeah, so... Interesting. The other thing that stands out when I'm looking at the box score of this game is just the attendance. 8,343. Delbert Green doesn't even hold that many people right now. I think it holds about 7,500. They put seats in now. What they had before was just hammocks swinging from the ceiling, I think, right? Isn't that the deal? <laughs> tell us Pack about that. them in. Tell us about that part. I mean, the 1970s, 1980s in Missoula, pretty legendary atmospheres for, for men's basketball. Well, actually, that was the year that really took off. Yeah. Prior to that year... If we got a couple thousand people there, it was great. And as we started winning that year, the people started coming. And actually, that the weekend that I was talking about with Idaho State and Boise State, we had well over 5,000, I think, at both of those ball games, And that just kind of solidified everything. And honestly, that, that playoff game with Idaho State, it might have been in the second half, might have been the loudest I'd ever heard the facility. I mean, it was... I mean, the fans were behind us. They were they were trying to help us all they could, and it was one of the loudest environments I ever was in. Eric, your senior season was one of the great seasons and perhaps the greatest season in the history of, of the program, and you win the Big Sky Conference and go to the NC2A tournament. You win a game in the NC2A tournament, and then you play a bunch of no-names in the second round from UCLA. And... Uh, <laughs> Coach Wooden and and that team is obviously pr- probably the most legendary college basketball team of all time, or at least that run uh, that they were on. It's a two point ball game at the end. You scored thirty two in that game, I believe. What do you remember about that game and going into that game against uh, you know against a, a team that is is it, I mean they're famous at that point, right? I mean you're sitting here going against the best of the best. Well, yeah, they were famous, and and we all knew that. Right. I mean, they were uh, they had won nine out of the previous ten NCAA tournaments. They were just legendary all the way through. I remember the playoff game or the the first NCAA game the week before. Back then, there was thirty two teams in the NCAA tournament, and so we played Utah State the week before, and UCLA played Michigan right after us, and. Ironically, that game was in Pullman, Washington, where I started and where Heathcote had been at one time, and so that was kind of special for us. But we got to watch UCLA in the Michigan game after our game in Pullman, and I think that helped a little bit. I mean, we felt like little kids in the candy store. The day before the UCLA game, every, you know, everybody gets to, to practice at the facility, and so uh, UCLA was actually practicing right before us, and I can remember us as players quickly dressing in the locker room and going out and sitting in the stands to watch UCLA practice and, and what they do and, you know, what they have. But we felt confident in ourselves, and Heathcote gave us that kind of confidence that we can go out and play with anybody. What did Judd do that did imbue you with that confidence? I mean, everything he had always told us. I mean, you 
you pretty much believed. And he was just a, he was a great teacher and seller of that point. He said, there's no reason to be afraid. And we had you know, we played some good teams earlier in the year. We had played Arizona State at their place. We played Long Beach State in that tournament down there. I mean, these are really good programs. And so we had played some good teams. We had gotten better as the year went on. I mean, we just had a lot of confidence in ourselves. What was the experience like right before you're lined up, the national anthem's playing, and you're like, we're about to actually play the team that's won eight out of the last nine national championships? Well, I don't think we looked at it that way. We <laughs> right. looked at it as an opportunity. Yeah. Um, hey, we are going to go out. We didn't have any pressure on us. We were going to go out and play hard and see what happened. I mean, not a lot of other teams that had success with them, so why should we? But um, why shouldn't we either? You had such a, a spectacular individual performance in that game. Did anybody say anything to you after the game? I mean, outside of your teammates and coaches and stuff like that, from either members of the media or people who were watching it, the, you know, the UCLA group, to acknowledge, you know, what what a great game that had been. It was one of those. As a basketball player, everybody at, at some point in their basketball life has a game where. It's just unbelievable. Not everybody, Eric. Okay, <laughs> you're talking well, to two guys who could do or counterexamples to that claim right there. I can tell you. Well, I can still go back, and I'll bet you somewhere in your life you had a day in a in a city league game or an it's intramural a, game true. or somewhere. It's true. I, I got one. You That's know, it. Ryan, somewhere Ryan, where zero. you know you, you make every shot or you know you make some plays you aren't used to making. Well, that was my night after the game. In fact. John wouldn't even stop me. I mean, we were televised that night, and that game afterwards, they you know they interviewed, of course, Wooden and one of his players, but they asked me to come back out and do a TV interview. So I followed John Wooden, and he you know congratulated me after the ball game on that. And yeah, there was a lot of people from the UCLA side that didn't necessarily see myself, but you know they either saw my parents or you know, somebody associated with Montana that uh, relayed that kind of information to me. So, yeah, it was it was very, very, very memorable. How much do you think that that game individually became a platform for Coach Heathcote to then go on to Michigan State? Well, I know it didn't hurt. When the Michigan State job opened up, their athletic director at that time had been at the University of Washington prior and he had gotten to know Heathcote's predecessor at Washington State, Marv Harshman. And this guy at Michigan State contacted Harshman and said, what do you think? Do you think Heathcote would do a good job? And because he had been on the national stage and Harshman, you know, sold him on that. And Judd had some struggles back there, you know, in the Midwest to get started. He showed that he could coach and he could recruit. And, um, yeah, he was, he was one of the best coaches of all time. Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree Podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups, and network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex, and your business demands a simpler approach to network security. At Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions. From the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot Communications. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com business. 
want to ask you about being a GA there, but before we leave your time at the University of Montana, of course, we just released the Jim Brandenburg episode, episode mm-hmm. one, and he was an assistant coach on Coach Heathcote's staff while you were playing. What do you remember about him as an assistant? How, how big a role did he play, and what was your relationship like at that time? Jim Brandenburg's one of those coaches, from a player standpoint, that you appreciated a lot more when you were out. Right. When you were all done, you realized how important he was. Like parents, kind of, huh? <laughs> Very similar, yeah. I think. That would be a good analogy, although most parents didn't have, you know, a Judd Heathcote as the guy right above them. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, I mean, Judd was so demanding and controlling. Jim had a very small part of the coaching aspect of it that we as players could see. Because, I mean, Judd controlled everything on the floor at practice and everything, but I'm sure that Jim was using his wisdom and knowledge and everything to tell Judd, you know, ideas and, you know, at least throw stuff out for Judd to uh, to use. And then, you know, I was really happy for Jim. You know, once Judd did leave here, he did get a little bit of the recognition he deserved, not so much here maybe, but at Wyoming and then San Diego State. So, you know, Jim was a fine coach, and I really respected him. But it was one of those, you know, you didn't see what he was doing here from a player standpoint. So often really demanding coaches like like Judd and, and at least to a certain extent like Jim Brandenburg too, you don't really appreciate what they're doing for you in the moment, right? Like when you're a kid, when you're just an early 20s guy, what were you thinking about the way that, that Heathcote kind of navigated you guys? And it, was there a moment afterwards where you, you, the light came on and you said, wow, he actually had our best interest at heart? Or, or, or did you realize it in the moment? Well, I did in the moment. I realized it. But again, it was one of those that you had to have a certain personality to be able to play mm-hmm. for him. You know, I would have never admitted to him this fact but, I mean, I, I got chewed on pretty good. Um, I became one of his kind of whipping boys, and I don't know if it was because he realized that he could yell at me and not have it affect me so much. But I got to the point early in my career with him, I mean, probably my junior year here at Montana, that he would be yelling at me, and it would go in one ear, and if I agreed with it, I would store it up there, and if I didn't agree with it, I just let it go out the other ear, and you know. But I always nodded my head yes. So you know, I was able to uh, to handle that kind of critiquing, I guess you would call it. It didn't affect me as much as it did some other players. He always wanted what was best for us. But back in those days, it's much different than it is today. Um, and that's kind of how you maybe motivated players was through fear and demands. But you also did go with him after a year off or after a year of not being with him to Michigan State as a grad assistant. And obviously, it's a great opportunity personally to go to grad school and be with him there. Also, you did go. And so there was clearly something of a relationship that said this is something that you were both OK with and happy to do. I love the man. I mean, there's no, no doubt of that. Um, I didn't always agree with him, but I did love the guy. When the opportunity came to go to Michigan State, I was excited about it. I mean, I was, the Big Ten is it's big time basketball, and you know at that time Indiana and Michigan that year, you know the year before he took the job, had just played for the national championship, so you knew the conference was good. 
Uh, it was going to be good basketball. I had never heard of a guy named you know Magic Johnson prior to arriving in East Lansing that that summer. It was fun to go back there with him, and I respected him as a coach. I mean, he was a great coach, and I was hoping to learn some more from that side of the, the, the fence. Do you remember the first time you ever saw Magic Johnson? I do. He would attend some of the open gyms, and it was a little disconcerting to know that here we are at a Big Ten university, and the best player on the floor was a high school senior. that doesn't say a lot for where you're at but then when you realize how good he was and i i got you know a few times you know back then you know coaches aren't supposed to attend open gyms and stuff like that but as a grad assistant you know i could be there because i wasn't part of the uh, you know official staff and i got to play a few you know few games with him in the open gyms and it was fun because you'd you'd run down the floor and you'd put your hands up and you knew it was going to hit you in the hands. You didn't know when it was coming or where it was coming from, but he would always hit you in the hands. I mean, he made some incredible passes. He was so much fun to play with and get to know that year. And I think it spoke a lot for, you know, Heathcote to be able to show his coaching ability that Magic chose Michigan State over Michigan, who was ranked number one a lot of that season. So that was a a big sell, and that was a huge turning point for Coach Heathcote in Michigan State. And you were intending to be at Michigan State for two years to finish the the grad degree, but after your first year there, the job as the head coach at Hellgate High School opened up, and you decided that You'd like that job. You were able to get that job, and uh, I think it worked out pretty well, if I understand it correctly, uh, Eric. What was it like to come back to Missoula, now to have been in Missoula for your entire adult life as a high school coach and teacher, and now your son, obviously, filling your shoes in that role, and you're still helping out, and also having that be a kind of a parallel track with the University of Montana and what they've done, and also Robin Selvig, who you played with, who, I mean, you guys were coaching the same two teams the whole way through for decades together. Well, Missoula was always a special place in my heart when I went to the university here. Uh, it was great to get to know the town a little bit. Uh, and actually, my senior year of college, uh, as an educator, I got to student teach, and it was at Hellgate High School that fall. And so I got to know the school a little bit. They were always kind of the underdog between Hellgate and Sentinel. And so the Hellgate had a special place in my heart. And when that job opened up, yeah, it would have been nice to have spent a second year at Michigan State, also get to coach Magic Johnson a little bit. But those jobs didn't op- open very often. And so... You know, I, I talked to Heathcote about it, and I talked to a couple of my professors at Michigan State that said that, you know, if I'd attend both summer sessions, that there's a way I could get my master's in the one year there. And so I, I went for that. I was fortunate enough to get the, the Hellgate job. It was a blessing. It's been something, you know, my wife and I have, you know, we wanted, you know, it was interesting because before the Hellgate job opened, we had just had twin daughters born to us when we were at Michigan State. We were out on a couple of walks in the spring, and it was one of those, you know, hey, a year from now, if you could pick a place to go, where would you want to go? And we both knew Missoula was a place we'd really like to get back to, and Hellgate was the one. And so when it opened up, uh, it was just a natural to pursue it. 
And fortunately enough for us that in early June, uh, I was named the head coach at Hellgate. And, you know, we moved back here in August, and it's it's been great. We haven't left. It's been uh, just been a fantastic experience for our lives and for our families. And so being in Missoula for the last 40 years, you, you kind of had a, a pivotal role in the beginning of this building of the University of Montana men's basketball program. And now, since Judd left, then Jim Brandenburg, but then from Mike Montgomery to Blaine Taylor all the way down to Don Holston, Wayne Tinkle, Larry Kristoviak, and Travis DeKeer, they all have roots that stem from Judd, and they all have connections with each other, either playing for each other, coaching with each other. What have you thought of just the way that this thing's evolved, and how much pride has that given you as a University of Montana alum to watch the basketball program continue to grow and thrive and, and become what it is today? Well, it's been very special, um, and and to have it done by the coaching tree, from Heathcote to Brandenburg. So when I came back and Brandenburg had the head job, uh, you know, he introduced me to Mike Montgomery, who was his assistant. And then, you know, when Montgomery takes over the program, he hires Stu Morrill as his assistant. I had actually played against Stu Morrill when he was at Gonzaga, and I was playing here at Montana. And so then Montgomery leaves, and Morrill takes over, and you know, from there, it's Blaine Taylor, who was a Hellgate grad. He was he graduated right before I came back, but I'd known Blaine a little bit from uh, his days in high school when I was playing at the university. You know, and so it, it just went on and on. And so every time a guy took over, you know, I knew who they were. Um, I really respected the fact that they would let me be a part of it at times. And I can still remember that first year that Montana qualified for the NCAA t- tournament, you know, I think it was in 91 with Blaine Taylor. And it was just, it just kind of boggled my mind that it had been 16 years since Montana had been there. And, you know, when we won it and won the conference in 75, we just kind of figured this is going to be one of those things that happens every other year Mm -hmm. or something like that. And to have it be 16 years. And then, you know, Blaine actually invited me to come talk to the team. You can see what kind of pep talk I gave because they got blown out by you know Florida State <laughs> by I don't know thirty some, but it was it was special and I've always felt a part of Montana and even with you know Coach DeCure now, uh, he makes me feel like I'm a part of it and it, it's been very I've been very blessed with the coaches they've had there to to be part of it and to to see the success that they've had. Eric Hayes, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's it's. A pleasure, and it's it's always fun to look back on your life and reflect, and, and it's always been a special place. Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups, and network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex, and your business demands a simpler approach to network security. At Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions. From the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot Communications. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com business. Well, happy to welcome into Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, 
man who played for both Judd Heathcote and Jim Brandenburg and is a local Missoulian, of all things, all the way through. Ben Demers joins us. Ben, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, we're certainly happy to have you here. And as we have now just released the Jim Brandenburg podcast, we're excited to have you here to talk about your time in the uh, mid and late 70s playing for the University of Montana coming out of Sentinel High School at that time and you and your brother both played for the Grizzlies but when you came out of high school it makes sense you're in Missoula you go to the University of Montana but when Judd Heathcote is you know the head coach at that time what was it for you that really drew you to that program at that time and did you have a sense that man, maybe you were building into something that was going to be pretty special, especially when Judd then goes on and he's the head coach of Michigan State and winning a national championship. When you're a senior in high school or of that age, your future really is not what you're looking at too much, at least in my case. Right. It was more a thing of the moment. High school girlfriend that really <laughs> prompted me to stay in Missoula. <laughs> but I watched Judd, you know, as he coached uh, – the first year he was uh, in the area, and I saw that he had a definite appeal to the crowd because of his antics and dancing on his sport coat and that type of thing. But uh, he, he looked like somebody that would be was definitely going to push you to try to excel in your sport, and the crowd enthusiasm was a big part of it. What do you remember about games back then? I'm sure you went to games before you became a Grizz. Everybody that we've talked to just says that Back then, you know, Adam Center, Dahlberg Arena was was quite the place with the zoo and, and, and like you said, Judd going crazy on the sidelines. What are your specific memories of those times? The entire seating area, which is opposite the benches now, which is occupied by season ticket holders, at that time was the uh, university student section. And there was a fellow named Pantleone, Mike Pantleone, that kind of got that zoo thing going and he would have people fold up their caimans during the introduction of the opposing team when the idaho teams came to town potatoes were thrown out on the floor <laughs> and so it it wasn't just you know the whole basketball thing the zoo was something that attracted i think a lot of people to the area you know ben th- one of and maybe the most legendary basketball game in the history of the University of Montana. You played it in uh, the 74-75 season against John Wooden's UCLA Bruins, a game that UCLA ultimately won by two points. To be on that team and in that game and obviously the run that UCLA was on at that time, what do you remember about that game and that experience? Well, it was an interesting situation because in 75 was the first year that they expanded the NCAA tournament field to 32 teams. So by winning your first round game, you were in the Sweet 16. So that was the first year of that expansion of the NCAA. But one of my most uh, vivid memories is the morning of the game in Portland, Oregon. UCLA had a one-hour shoot-around prior to the Grizzlies going on the court. And I just remember as we walked on and waiting for the floor to clear, just watching John Wooden as he walked among his players with his rolled-up program, you know, very small in stature, but just commanded the the uh, respect of his players. It was such a, a vivid, you know, image of him as a coach. 
fairly awe-inspiring to look at their players as well because, you know, I knew we were not in their league. Everybody knew that. But they, uh, you know, just one game we played exceptionally well and, and uh, gave them a, a run. I think it was a three-point, two- or three-point victory. Those UCLA teams, like you said, I mean, they were like rock stars. I mean, those guys were way more famous or way more popular and way more recognized across the country as basketball stars than even anybody in the NBA. I mean, everybody from coast to coast knew Bill Walton, Lou Alcindor, and you know John Wooden. Everybody sure. knew who those guys were. What Do you remember preparing for the game and what you guys thought about the prospects of playing these intimidating giants? Judd Heathcote. He was kind of the Bill Belichick of, you know, the Big Sky Conference at that time. He would identify the weaknesses of a team and try to exploit that as much as possible. And UCLA had none. So we we did a lot of preparation against their full-court zone presses, you know, basically getting the ball down the floor, <laughs> as I recall, just trying to get, you know, get in a situation where we could attempt to be successful. What was it about Coach Heathcote? to you that made him such a good basketball coach? What were the, the hallmarks of what he did? Well, he was very well prepared for each opponent. And you knew the week prior or the week of the games that you were going to be playing exactly what you needed to do to, to play against that particular team. I recall, uh, I don't remember the team that we were playing, but they played nothing but zone. So we worked extensively all week long on our zone offense and I was out on the point and I remember Heathcote just screaming he was just almost livid screaming kick it around kick it around and for some reason I got it in my mind that a drop kick from the point to the wing would be something that would be tolerated (laughs) at that particular moment (laughs) and it was the most perfect 10.0 drop kick you could ever get he blows a whistle as hard as he could, stomped over to me, and I knew I was going to be struck physically. And he looked at me and said, not bad, Benny. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> now kick it around. And that was it, you know. That's, that is an unbelievable story. You mentioned that that game against UCLA and, and the winning, by winning an NCAA tournament game, getting to the Sweet 16, sort of set the stage for... Judd and his rise and going to Michigan State and things like that. But did you guys have any sort of foresight that this guy was going to rise to the level that he that he attained? And, and he became one of the great college basketball coaches ever. Initially, he brought the Big Sky to the, the forefront, the Big Sky Conference. You know, and in doing that, his own personal acclaim was was identified. But as a player, you know, you you sign up. You think you're going to play with a coach for four years, and then halfway through the marriage, they're gone. And that's just a reality of the sport, but I think it's more easily identified now than it was then. You know, they change jobs like underpants. But, you know, Judd, in doing that, in the success we had, thereafter, the Big Sky Conference had a name, you know, an identity, and that 75 team could be pointed to as a team that brought it into the forefront. Judd leaves and goes to Michigan State, and Jim Brandenburg becomes the head coach. Obviously, no kid that goes to play for a guy wants that guy to to leave, 
but what was it like with the transition for you between you know two different personalities, two different types of coaches, and what was Coach Brandenburg like when you played for him? Well, the transition wasn't that dramatic because he had been in the program with Judd. He was a much more soft-spoken person, still did a lot of the same things that, that we had done the previous two years. Probably the most interesting change in dynamic was the introduction of Mike Montgomery my junior year as assistant coach because he was fairly young and really the player's coach, if you will, and we identified readily with him, brought a different uh, perspective to what had been kind of a, a situation where there was no foolishness. Judd liked to have his laugh. He had a great sense of humor, but there was not a lot of laughter, I would say, during practice sessions. You know, It was pretty much go to work and get it done. Coach Montgomery, when he became an assistant coach, like you said, I mean, he's a very young guy at that time. And so you talk about the identification as a player of not necessarily a peer, but maybe somebody who is at the same level in some senses. But what was it about Mike specifically? Was it just the contrast between he and Brandenburg that made that relationship possible that way? I think it was his uh, ability to communicate with the players and talk to them on a level still authoritative, but but not overbearing. If you had an issue that you wanted to talk about, or he would sense things as a coach that maybe new players were being bothered by, and he would actually bring it up. It was, and and he was, he got right in there, and he acted as a uh, second string guard during the practice. So he would he would play with the team, you know, as we prepared for another opponent. Fun to have around. I enjoyed him. What do you remember about the the shooting star that was Michael Ray? Well, Michael Ray came in. He was an exceptional physical talent, but I would say not emotionally ready to be thrust into the notoriety that he received in college, first of all, but definitely not in the pros, you know. And, And he went on to have a successful career as a coach internationally, think he's doing quite well I haven't spoken with him for some time but he was just one of those players that he just had such an impact on the floor defensively and then he of course was an exceptional talent I've got lots of Michael Ray stories I will not share all (laughs) you know obviously this is after you graduated then but what'd you think about the University of Montana program when when coach Montgomery took over you know he obviously went on and has gone on to have you know, a legendary Hall of Fame type of career. Judd Heathcote started the ball rolling, and uh, successive coaches prior to that have all been successful. The University of Montana has had a successful program with every coaching change that has come about, um, even uh, to this present time with Travis. So Mike Montgomery, I knew wherever he coached, he'd be successful. And he's a California boy, came from Long Beach State, so... Going back to Stanford did not really surprise me, but obviously he's very successful there. Didn't have a great stint in the NBA, but like some great college coaches, the NBA is not the place for him. As a Missoulian and a Sentinel graduate, 
was there something that was unique? Because in this present day, there's not a lot of Montanans that end up on either the Montana or Montana State rosters ultimately. And so is that something that you took some pride in? What was that experience like that way? As I began to play for the Grizzlies, it became evident that they were very appreciative of the hometown player, you know, the hometown kids staying put and great fan base, great support. And I learned that if I saw someone on the street and they called me Benny, it was because they didn't know me personally. It was through basketball. Benny was great when I was six years old. <laughs> but, you know, as you grow older, you, Ben would have been fine. Right. <laughs> but, that, but the term Benny, you know, that, that's just what they called me when I played. So fan support and still is to this day. But I think without the, the excessive student body, atmosphere i think it's, it's changed the complexion you know of the games and the way it still has fan support but it's not as um, aggressive let's put it that way as when you have the big group of students yeah just watching the evolution of this program how much do you think the continuity of of what has gone on the last 40 to 45 years has played into the success of what's it been like for you as a university of montana alum to watch where the program's at now Continuity is the key phrase there because it has been the association of one coach coming in, the relationship they had either as a player or assistant coach for the previous coach or one that had been before them. There's a connectedness about the coaching tree in Montana that I don't think you see in a lot of other places. Michigan State, where Judd coached for so long and now Izzo, you know, there's a definite connectedness there that you just don't have in other spots where coaches move in from one location to another. They're there for a time, and then they go somewhere else. But I think that's made the program very strong throughout the years. Sense of family. Ben Demers. Benny, thank you. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Grizz Greats, The Coaching Tree, Episode 1, Bonus Track 1, with Eric Hayes and Ben Demers. We would like to give our thanks to Mr. Hayes and Mr. Demers for their time to come in and speak to us about their time playing at the University of Montana, and specifically Coach Heathcote and Coach Brandenburg. We are off and running with Grizz Greats, The Coaching Tree podcast, and the series continues with Mike Montgomery. Mike Montgomery, the head coach of the University of Montana from 1978 through 1986, Went on to Stanford where he won an NIT championship and then made it to an NC2A tournament Final Four before then ultimately being the head coach at California as well as a stint in the NBA with the Golden State Warriors. A legendary head coach for certain, the focus of Episode 2. For Colton Nuanas, I'm Ryan Tutel. Thanks for listening.